Good evening, brothers and sisters. It's my, it's my delight and privilege to once again bring the Word of God to us tonight. Please open your scriptures to Mark chapter 14. If you've been coming on Sunday evenings, you know that three weeks ago, Pastor Mark began a brief series dealing with the Passion Week, and his pur purpose was to break that up into six messages, and obviously he's not here tonight, but he asked me to continue to take the section that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to begin reading in verse 53 of Mark 14 through to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered 
Now Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before your word now. We ask that you would break in upon us with light and the power of your spirit. Pray that you would show us what you would have us to know, what, us to, what we should be learning tonight, to the end that you would be glorified in the lives of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I begin, I want to give credit to two men who, whose uh, works I have found so useful uh, in prepping for these messages. Uh, one of them is uh, A.B. Um, help me, Jamie. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hugh Martin, Shadow of Calvary, A.B. Bruce, The Training of the Twelve. Now, I'm not quoting either of these. I'm only mentioning them because I've been so immersed in what they have written about these scenes that's, that are before us that I, I don't want to be guilty of using things without giving credit. So um, please receive that. All right. This message does not require a long introduction. You probably have read my title, Peter is Us. I'm telling you at the beginning of the sermon, the point to which I desire to lead you at the conclusion. Peter is us. Or if you prefer, we are all Peter. The scene before us tonight is one of the most poignant in all of Scripture. It evokes in us a sense of sadness, perhaps only surpassed by the agonies of the Lord. His cruel treatment before the council and his ultimate suffering and death upon the cross. Among which, the account of Peter's denial remains embedded as a permanent reminder to us of the frailty of human flesh and weakness in our struggles against temptation and sin. Perhaps you have never thought of yourself as Peter. You suppose that you would never behave so badly as Peter did, denying with an oath that he knew Jesus, the one to whom he owed his life, his everything. He said emphatically at one point in Mark 14, 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So before we push back against the assertion that I made, namely that Peter is us, we must retreat from our bold confidence for a moment and follow the scripture as by God's spirit we discover that it is true. I have only two main points. The fall of Peter and the disciples does not come to us in scripture in a vacuum. 
There are pertinent facts that if we consider as part of the context of their fall, help us to understand the reasons why. So my first point is pertinent facts. And under this, I have three subpoints. And these all relate to the Lord's teaching and instruction of Peter and the disciples before their failure and fall. So point number one, pertinent facts, subpoint one, the Lord's teaching about his mission. His teaching about his mission. In his teaching, Jesus had well prepared them, teaching concerning his coming, betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. In, even in Mark, three times his teaching is repeated. In Mark 8:31. In Mark 8:31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Mark chapter 9, just one chapter over, in verse 31, he, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. And then in chapter 10, in the third case, he said to them, in verse 33 and 34, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus taught his disciples about his, his mission. Jesus was open with them about this. He plainly told them. The problem was that they heard him through the filter of their own notions about what Messiah would do when he came. They believed that he was Messiah. See Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they believed it, but they did not expect that he would die an ignominious death on the cross. They thought that he would again establish the kingdom in Israel, that he would, place, he would be placed upon the throne of David and break the power of their enemies, who in that day especially was Rome. And so the rebuke from Peter in, Ma in Matthew 16, 22, he says, Lord, far be it from you, this shall never happen to you. This was so far outside the conception, their conception, that the disciples had of the mission of Messiah, they simply did not believe it. First pertinent fact. Second pertinent fact, Jesus' command to watch and pray. His command to his disciples to watch and pray while in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
in Matthew 14, verses 37 and 38. I'm sorry, Mark 14, 37 and 38. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This command to watch and pray, to which Jesus attached a purpose, that you may not enter into temptation. The reason for the Lord's instruction to his sleeping disciples now, and remember that in a matter of moments, Jesus will say, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Jesus is aware that in a moment, the garrison sent by the chief priests and religious leaders will be there to take him away. He has only a few remaining moments to speak to them, and even fewer words to speak. Watch and pray. There is no concern here on the part of Jesus for the safety of their lives. He knows that he must give his life in order that there be a gospel of good news. And he knows that their lives must be saved in order to preach it. His concern is not for their safety. It is, however, that they not fall in the hour of their severest temptation. And so he says to them, watch and pray. For that was what was most needed right then. Jesus knew that this would be their only defense against spiritual failure. It was his call to them for spiritual watchfulness. In the third place, the third pertinent fact was that Jesus taught them about the reality of spiritual warfare. Luke 22 and 31. Luke 22, 31 refers to the account of Peter's denial in Luke's gospel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. From these words of Jesus, our minds are forced to deal with the alarming reality often overlooked as we slumber in our spiritual complacency that there is a war of spiritual significance. There is a battle for the souls of Jesus' followers. It is a cosmic battle. It is a clash between good and evil, God and Satan. And God's people are permanent targets, always remaining in the sight of the enemy. The reality 
of this is clearly demonstrated in the life of Job, who was assaulted and sorely afflicted by Satan with God's permission. And though he once failed, Satan did, in the case of Job, Satan will continue to tempt and afflict God's people. The words of Jesus clearly indicate Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Peter, you are no match for the devil. No matter what you think you are, in spite of your self-assuredness, the devil is your superior in strength and power and tactics of warfare. He is a roaring lion, and so, to the alarming word, Satan has desired you, Jesus adds the words of assurance, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And this is the only reason why Peter, why Peter's fall was not ultimate and soul damning. Unlike Judas, Peter, though weak in faith and character in many regards, was still a true disciple who loved Jesus fervently and was guarded and kept by means of the prayer of Jesus. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus praying to his father says, in regard to the disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The disciples in this moment were not concerned for their physical well-being. They were sleeping. That is not the posture or activity called for when one's life is in imminent danger. They were with Jesus. They knew that he would protect them. He had proven it to them on many occasions. He had even rebuked them for their little faith when on the sea they feared for their lives when he was asleep in the rear of the boat. This was not their fear. They were not a fear of their lives. But we should be warned and sobered by the reality that they apparently were so senseless to the approaching spiritual conflict that they needed to be admonished by the Lord to watch and pray because Satan's purpose was to destroy their faith bit by bit. And surely he would have, except for the reality that Jesus was praying for them, that their faith would not fail. So those are three pertinent facts that make up the context of the scene that's before us. Now, point number two, probing question. A probing question. 
With the light that scripture sheds, as we have seen, upon the context of Peter's and the other's failure, especially the Lord's teaching and careful preparation of his disciples for the horrifying events that are coming, we are left with a question that begs for an answer. And it is this, why did Peter and the others fail the way they did? Why did they fail the way they did? And there are many likely reasons that could be put forward, but I want to put forward just three reasons why Peter and the others failed the way they did. Number one, there was in them a crippling lack of self-awareness. A crippling lack of self-awareness. Peter did not know himself well. He had not come to grips with who he was as a man. To be sure, he possessed more than average physical strength, as one of whose occupation as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee required. He could cast and retrieve nets full of fish, and his prowess in this probably, as it might in most men, foster a kind of pride and self-sufficiency, sometimes unrecognized by those who possess it. And this would explain the braggadocio, his boastful and seeming arrogant behavior at times. This spirit in Peter produced his statements familiar to all of us, like recorded in Mark 14, 29. Lord, even though they all fall away, I will not. And in Mark 14, 29. And, and Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death in Luke 22, 33. There's no doubt that Peter's statement his statements as he spoke them were accurate and truthful and re represented his deepest longings and desires. He loved Jesus dearly and believed himself prepared to face any enemy for Jesus' sake. And he, more than the rest, displayed his bravery when the garrison arrived to arrest Jesus by not so skillfully wielding the sword that cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. He was prepared to fight that fight, but the larger, more consequential battle, he was unprepared to fight. He did not know himself well enough to know that he lacked the necessary weapons for spiritual warfare. He lacked humility and dependence upon God's spirit. He thought himself to be bolder, stronger than all the disciples, and not being prepared for battle, he succumbed to fear and shame, and the result was defeat and failure. Peter is the representative disciple in this, and not just of the 11, but of us all. He demonstrates for us the weakness of human resolve when we are faced with the larger battles, the spiritual battles of life. 
So answer to the question, why did they fail? Number one, the first answer, they did not know themselves well. Secondly, the second answer I would offer as an answer to the question, why did Peter and the disciples fail, is this. Their faith gave way to fear. Their faith gave way to fear. As we've seen in our first point, one of the pertinent facts that constituted the context of the entire scene with which we're engaged was that Peter, was that Jesus clearly taught his disciples about his coming, betrayal, arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. They knew these things because Jesus had told them. Then why weren't they prepared to stand with the resolve that they had said assuredly was in their hearts? Because they did not believe him. Had they believed had they had faith in his words when he told them that after three days he would rise again, their entire outlook would have been different. There would have been no fear of losing their beloved friend, no fear of the unknown, only the prospect of what at this time they did not understand, that by his death they would have life. Oh, that they could believe it what metal it would have injected into their spines. The timid, cowering disciples could have been the conquering heroes had they believed. And history attests to this because they became champions for the gospel. Upon hearing and seeing with their own eyes the resurrection of their Lord. They at last then believed, but now they are on the other side of the cross event. And their unbelief produced in them fear and cowardice and sin. The effects of this unbelief were tragic and added to the weight of sorrows that Jesus was bearing. He said, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Could you not watch with me one hour? His friends failed him at the time of his greatest need. The final answer that I want to offer to the question, why did Peter and the disciples fail? They failed because they didn't watch and pray as Jesus had told them to do. In the hour of their personal conflict, each one surely with thoughts racing through their minds, what is happening? What is wrong with Jesus? What am I supposed to do now? They were asking questions that they did not know the answers to. Things were happening that they did not understand. Jesus had tried to prepare them for this. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knew that they would face the most egregious temptation of their lives. 
He also knew that they were weak and that all of their resolve echoed in statements like, Thou knowest all others, though all others leave you, I will never leave you. That was just so much unthoughtful boasting. And their simple resolve would never carry the day. Adding to this, their precarious position, being without spiritual strength or natural resolve, we observe that even more ominous, the more ominous fact that another, even greater power is opposed to them and is working against their success. We have seen this already. Satan has desired you that he might sift you like wheat. Their greatest, most powerful spiritual enemy, the prince of the power of the air, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, the devil, was concentrating all of his power on this scene. And you can only imagine that his chief goal was the fall and failure of Peter and the other disciples. But what or who can conquer the devil when all of his guns are aimed at us? Jesus knows. Watch and pray. And through the Apostle Paul, he continues to teach this important lesson when Paul says to the Ephesian church, put on the whole armor of God. Take up your weapons not carnal ones, but spiritual ones, the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So take up the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And then he adds, praying. Praying. Watch and pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Watch and pray. They failed to watch and pray. Satan had the day and no doubt rejoiced in this that though he could not keep Jesus from accomplishing the redemption of his people, he was able, aided by the disciples' failure to watch and pray, at least for the moment, to expose the disciples' spiritual weakness and prompt them for the moment to forsake their Lord and their friend. Happily, this was only a temporary defeat, and only so because Jesus added to the warning, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. This secured the ultimate outcome for Peter and the disciples. Though they failed in this instance, they would not utterly and completely fall. 
That was Judas's end, but it would not be theirs. Having seen the three pertinent facts and tried to answer, trying to answer the question, in light of those facts, why did they fall? Let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. The end of the matter that we've been studying tonight is this, that in spite of the clear teaching of Jesus, his encouragements to watch and pray, and his warnings to be aware of the weakness of their flesh and the destructive influence of Satan in their lives, Peter and the other disciples failed miserably in the moment of temptation. In the, in the instance of Peter, who in this case is the representative disciple, the Gospels emphasize that after the cock crew, the second time, he remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. He remembered. The first crowing was a gracious warning. That warning might have prevented his complete collapse. Why didn't Peter hear it? Why didn't Peter hear the first crowing of the rooster? for all the reasons that we've been considering. And so the second crowing of the rooster brought with it a bitter realization, a, a piercing arrow of conviction of sin to Peter's heart. The weight, the strength of that conviction caused Peter to go out and weep bitterly, the scripture tells us. The account in Luke's gospel tells us that Peter, being identified as one who had been with Jesus, said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine the impact of that single glance on Peter's heart. He would never be the same. Jesus guaranteed that when he said to Peter, according to Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. New Testament history attests to the impact of this moment in the life of Peter. Well, the title of the sermon is Peter is Us. I want to ask you now, everyone, do you see it? Do you see Peter in yourself? Has the bringing to your mind of this scene reminded you of the many ways that you are just like Peter?
that in your own struggles with temptation, you are often weak in faith, weak in resolve, unaware of your spiritual enemies, your flesh, the world, and the devil? Maybe you are in a case where you feel already defeated with no hope of ever conquering your besetting sins or shedding those weights that hinder your spiritual growth. The answer to how may I rise out of the pit of this weakness and defeat and failure in my spiritual life, the answer is in the gospel. Christ died for our sins. We never move beyond this in our Christian lives. We are not good people. That is why Jesus had to die for us. Christ died for our sins, yes. By faith we are redeemed and justified, yes. We have been changed in heart, yes. The work of sanctification has begun, yes. We have a long way to go. I believe that that look from Jesus that Peter received was one that brought not only conviction, but compassion. A look that said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dear ones, this promise is for you. The people of God laboring under the weight of a conscience troubled because of stubborn sins that simply weigh you down with guilt. You know what I'm talking about. And if God in this message tonight is bringing those kinds of sins to your mind, don't sweep them under the rug. Bring them out into the clear light of God's grace and deal with them tonight. The invitation has come. Come, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will receive you. He will help you. He is a compassionate Savior. He will not turn you away. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? The old gospel song goes, tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. One of the things I like about the winter in South Carolina, and maybe it's because I'm, as I get older, I notice things that I never noticed before. But one of the things I really like about winter is that as I drive down the road, I, 
And as I look at the trees along the side of the road, the trees that have shed all their foliage, I can really see the character of the trees, especially the large oak trees, the mammoth oak trees. You know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you need to look. You need to, you need to take a look. But when they're in full foliage, you can't see what's underneath. You can't see the, the sturdy trunks and limbs and branches, those that have weathered storms throughout years and years. They have real character, those trees. But then there are other trees also who have shed their foliage, and what I notice about them is that there seems to be growth that's coming up from the ground and wrapping itself around them and almost looks like these are squeezing the life out of the tree. And you see the mistletoe, you know that mistletoe up there in those trees, that's a parasite. That's not good for that tree. And the poison ivy and the other kinds of vines that grow up and just encase the tree. Let's make the analogy with our own lives. What are our lives like? Are we beset with the parasite of sins that are undealt with? Are we like those trees struggling for their lives on the side of the road? Some of which have already fallen and there's no life left. Brothers and sisters, recognize the signs of parasites on your tree, sins. Those life-sucking vines and parasites didn't appear overnight. They didn't just happen and suddenly they're there. They started very small and grew and grew. And when they're not dealt with, they will kill the tree. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Deal with your sins. Make short accounts with your sins. Make short accounts with your brothers and sisters. Make short accounts with God. Do not be like those trees. Be like that tree in Psalm 1 whose root is deep and sure, whose leaf will never wither. When you look into the mirror, and with this I'll close, when you look into the mirror, if you're honest with yourself, you will see a resemblance to Peter there. Though that should be concerning you, it should not be crippling. Just ask, just as he, Peter, was helped by Jesus, Jesus prays for you that your faith will endure to the end. In light of such grace, your only appropriate response is to bow to your Lord, 
confessing your sins, thanking him for his mercy, and then taking up your cross and following him. May our gracious God, by his word, awake us out of our spiritual slumber to be watchful unto prayer and watchful against the sins that so easily beset us. May God help us. Amen.